Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, see jsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help to support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today is Professor John Coffey. Welcome, welcome, John. It's a pleasure to be on the show, Ari. He is the author of Persecution and Toleration in Protestant England, 1558 to 1689, and that'll be the focus of our show today. This book was published in 2000, however, it remains vitally important to us today. It deals with the rise of religious tolerance in England, more generally the rise of freedom of conscience, and of course this provides an important background for the American First Amendment. Reminder for listeners, this was ratified in 1791, and it begins, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I think we Americans take this for granted, but it was a hard, hard-won freedom. Professor Coffey earned his PhD from Cambridge. He's the author of many other books, book chapters, and journal articles, including most recent, the most recent book, Exodus and Liberation, Deliverance Politics from John Calvin to Martin Luther King. Maybe toward the end, we can uh, get a synopsis of what that's about. Sure. Yeah. But I'd, I'd like to start, so your book focuses on a particular era of England, but to set the context for listeners, I'd like to get to go back a little bit further and talk about how the Christian church all the way back to its Romanization got into the business of suppressing heresy, blasphemy and the like. Yeah, sure. Uh, Obviously before uh, I pick up the story, there's already 15 centuries of history that have passed under the bridge. Um, And Christianity is distinctive, different from Islam say in that for several centuries, it had to make do without the support of the state And I think that's actually quite important to the story because it's one of the key things that those who argue for religious toleration pick up later that in its uh, primitive centuries, um, the the, the church was, uh, um, Christianity spread without state support. Um, But in the the, uh, early fourth century, um, the emperor, the Roman emperor Constantine converts to Christianity Uh, And he initially introduces toleration of the Christians who had been going through a bout of persecution. Um, But then he begins to give them uh, significant support. And it's him who calls a great council of bishops at Nicaea to decide uh, the question of the Trinity. Uh, And as you go through the fourth century, Christianity moves from really being a a marginalized, persecuted sect to becoming the official religion of the uh, Roman Empire. The Christians then actually became, at various periods, quite antagonistic toward the pagan religions, which had been dominant for some time in Rome. Yes, that's right. You know, so towards the end of the fourth century, under the Emperor Theodosius and others, you get legislation and uh, increasing moves against uh, pagan religion. Um, Historians recently have emphasized that coexistence continues for quite some time uh, into the fifth century. But gradually, paganism is being eroded um, and uh, Christianity is starting to adopt coercive measures uh, against its rivals. Um, uh, So that that would include uh, the Jews as well, but particularly uh, paganism. And so one thing that you discuss in your book is how the theology of Augustine, particularly on this 
in this area of toleration and persecution formed the basis of Christian theology for, well, in, up until the 1500s and even 1600s. So, but, and yet it was quite different. His views seem to be quite different from how it developed. So you quote a fellow named Henry Chadwick who says, Augustine would have been horrified by the burning of heretics. So maybe you can walk us through the basics of Augustine's view on the church's role in forcing belief. Yes, yeah. Um, Before Augustine, uh, particularly before the conversion of Constantine, a number of Christian thinkers had argued for religious liberty. I mean, they'd they'd actually coined that phrase in Latin, people like Tertullian of Carthage and Lactantius. They'd advanced arguments that individuals should be able to choose their own religion for themselves. Uh, They should have freedom of religion. Um, Once Christianity becomes the establishment, as is often the way, um, the appeal of state support and using using the state against one's rivals uh, starts to grow. And you can see that particularly in Augustine. Augustine is a very complex figure. He's one of the most prolific writers of late antiquity. He's far and away the most influential of the church fathers for the next 1000 years. Very influential, not just on Catholics, but also on the early Protestants. Um, And one of the things that he begins to argue in the early um, uh, 5th century, in the early 400s, is that uh, it is at times legitimate to use force in religion against schismatic groups, groups who've broken away from the main Catholic church. Uh, And in particular, he's thinking about a group called the Donatists, or the Donatists, um, who are a fairly militant, separatist, sectarian group. Uh, And Augustine argues that Uh, It's okay for the magistrates to require to force these people to attend church and even to use certain corporal punishments against them. But but Henry Chadwick is is quite right that Augustine is not arguing for the burning of heretics or for for the use of execution. Uh, He's seeing the use of force as something that can reclaim people for the church rather than fundamentally expel them from from, from this life. So it takes quite a long time, really, before Christians reconcile themselves to the use of capital punishment uh, against heretics. And it's really only after um, around 1000 AD in in the high medieval era that you start to get heresy executions developing as a phenomenon. Yeah, and you mentioned that there, and it was actually surprising to me, that there's no recorded cases of heretics being executed up until that later period. So I guess it's surprising on two points. Why was it initially rare for hundreds of years? And then how did it, from an historical perspective, somewhat suddenly become fairly widespread? So how do you, how do you explain both of those mysteries? Yeah, those are puzzles for uh, historians. I mean, there, there's kind of the, the odd isolated case earlier um, with a figure called Priscillian, who's a, um, uh, in, in Spain. Uh, but yeah, you're right that the, it, it's not. It takes about a millennium for uh, Christians to start to practice um, capital punishment towards uh, uh, heretics. Um, so why did it take so long? I, th- I think there is certain um, the, the kinds of things that later tolerationists would pick up on. Uh, the, the idea that Christianity was spread should be spread through the word, not through the sword. The fact that the early church in the book of the Acts of the Apostles relies on preaching and miracle, not on um, not on state support and coercion. 
um, the, the teaching of Jesus about uh, turning the other cheek, um, about suffering persecution, but not not inflicting it. All of those things, I think, made Christians uh, reticent about the use of force. So the, the kind of educational force that Augustine was thinking about was one thing, but extermination uh, was was a, a step too far, I think, for, for many Christian uh, thinkers and bishops and so on. Why does it change? I mean, that's uh, that's been a puzzle for, for medieval historians. Um, some argue that it's to do with uh, really threatening new heretical movements like the Albigensians uh, in, in the high Middle Ages. Uh, others argue that um, in, in some ways, paradoxically, uh, late medieval or high medieval civilization is becoming um, very intellectually sophisticated, not least in the way it thinks about theology and about heresy. Um, definitions are becoming more sharply defined, and perhaps this is a, a factor which, which leads into greater hostility towards heretics, greater determination. Uh, but there does also seem to be a sense of moral panic. Um, that could uh, be accompanied, that, that could be partly uh, uh, triggered, I suppose, by uh, phenomena like you know, plague, uh, which is not uncommon in, in the period, uh, and w- would lead to the stigmatization of um, groups like the Jews or those with leprosy uh, or heretics uh, who could be scapegoated in a sense. So there seems to be a kind of scapegoating function at work. Okay. Yeah, because that's one thing that struck me reading the book is how intertwined intellectual and moral progress often seem to be with what I would regard as profound (laughs) reversals of moral progress and just people acting horribly so there just seems yeah. to be this very this very strange dynamic throughout in this era but then i'm starting to think about it in terms of more general i think that's right that, that we often associate uh intellectual sophistication with uh with tolerance and open-mindedness and general niceness uh but that um in practice you know when you read some of these medieval and early modern figures who are defending religious uniformity and coercion you know, one of the things you, you're struck by is how smart they are uh, and in a sense how morally serious they are. But, but the kind of conclusions that they're reaching are ones that uh, most modern readers would find rebarbative, even shocking. So moving a bit closer to the key era at hand, someone you mentioned is John Wycliffe. He was the religious reformer in the 1300s. So what was his impact on the later Reformation and how did the church respond to him and his movement? And just a reminder to listeners, 1517 was the date of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. Yeah, so Wycliffe or Wycliffe is operating about a century before Luther. Uh, he's particularly associated with the University of Oxford and also the town of Lutterworth, which is just a, a few miles south of uh, Leicester, where I'm I'm living. Um and uh, he, he's, he was later described as the morning star of the Reformation because in, in certain respects, he anticipates some of the uh, ideas of the Protestant reformers. In particular, he, he wants to put the Bible into the hands of um, the people. You know, so he's involved in sort of early uh, promotion of, of the, the, biblical, the biblical text. Um, and he's willing to critique the church and its traditions um, 
by way of the Bible, by comparing it to scripture. So the thing that was really central to Protestantism, this this appeal to the Bible against the church's traditions, uh, is something that we can already see in Wycliffe and also, f- you know, further um, uh, east in Europe in uh, in the Czech the, the Czech lands uh, with uh, Jan Hus and the Hussites, uh, who is one of these figures who ends up on like Wycliffe ends up being burned at the stake. So to Americans, the idea of an established church just seems wild and uh, almost unimaginable. But that's because our legal tradition is coming out of there being an established church and reacting against that. So maybe set us up, how did the, in basics, how did the English church become established from Henry VIII with his strange marriage annulment up until Elizabeth I, and I think she took the throne in 1558. That's right. So what's the what's the process there of establishment? I mean, I, I guess it's worth saying to begin with that for early modern people, the idea of no religious establishment is uh, unthinkable for most of them. Um, that's partly that they don't really have models of what we would think of as you know, secularism or a separation of church and state. Uh, and it's not just looking back to the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament and uh, the, the, the kings of Israel and the, the way in which Israel was a sort of theocracy. Um, but it's also um, looking back to um, the Greco-Roman uh, culture and to, to the classics uh, in which the idea of a civil religion was absolutely taken for granted. So um, contemporaries tend to think religion is the, the glue that holds society together. So it, it's, it's absolutely uh, you know, it's essential for politics of the public sphere. Um, England sort of develops on a, a rather unique um, path in the 16th century. Uh, Henry VIII, as you say, is the, the critical figure. Uh, Henry's break with Rome is very unusual because it's not because Henry becomes a Protestant. In many ways, he remains a religious traditionalist, but it is because um, uh, he comes to conclude, perhaps conveniently, that his, his first marriage was never legitimate. He had, he had married uh, the um, the widow of his, his elder brother. Um, and uh, he wants, of course, by this point to, to remarry Anne Boleyn. Um, and when that annulment is not granted by the papacy, partly because um, his wife's uh, uncle is Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, who, who won't uh, who won't allow it, um, he uh, he then uh, through Parliament uh, introduces an act of supremacy, which declares him to be the supreme head of the English Church. Um, so th- that's when the, the Church of England breaks with the Church of Rome, uh, and Henry has three children by. Um, uh, his uh, first three um, marriages, um, and each of those children goes on to become a monarch. Um, so uh, uh, the um, uh, his third child is a boy, Edward, so he takes um, priority and becomes king after Henry's death. And Edward and his advisors are very strongly Protestant, so they move England in a very firmly Protestant direction. But he's a boy king and he, he dies very young uh, and uh, he's succeeded by his older sister, uh, Mary, who's the daughter of Henry's first first wife, uh, the one from whom he'd been divorced. Um, and Mary is at the opposite end of the religious spectrum from Edward. Uh, she's a devout Catholic and she 
promotes a, a reversal of the Protestant Reformation, introduces a very strong Catholic Reformation. And under her, there are something like almost 300 Protestants who are executed uh, for heresy. Um, and then finally, she, after her death uh, in 1558, she's succeeded by Anne Boleyn's daughter, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth I um, is a Protestant. I mean, not as ardent a Protestant as uh, as Edward or his advisors, but nevertheless, uh, she does reintroduce Protestantism. And in 1559, there's an act of uniformity which says that everybody must worship according to a book of common prayer, uh, which was based on uh, a similar book under Edward VI. Uh, but that becomes the basis for a, a uniform Protestant national church. So one of the key dynamics that I got out of your book was actually not that it not just that there was a conflict between protestants and catholics which is i think how most people look at it and that's certainly a huge huge issue in this era but in england there became this three-part conflict between the established church and then the catholics on the one side but then on the other mm -hmm. side were the puritans and there was this and this was and this dynamic is what led to um kind of the that sets kind of the context for the intellectual discussions of tolerance and with different groups becoming more allied at various times. So can you give us the basics of that dynamic, that three-part dynamic? Yeah, that, that, that's right. Um, so um, there, there are, I guess, two groups of dissenters from the established church, um, though many of these dissenters remain within the church and agitate for reform from within. On the one hand, there are the Roman Catholics who remain faithful and loyal to um, the late medieval church and to the papacy. Um, only a minority of these actually have contact with Catholic priests. So these are the, the, the hardcore, if you like, of English Catholicism, the recusants who refuse to join in parish worship. There are, there are may, maybe constitute only about 1% of the population by the end of Elizabeth's reign. So they're a small minority, um, but they are um, encouraged and supplied by Jesuits and other priests from uh, from the continent, usually English priests who've trained on the continent. Um, but beyond them, there's a much wider penumbra of um, Catholic sympathisers, maybe several hundred thousand people who contemporaries call church papists, who carry on being involved in the parish churches, but actually their sympathies lie more with the, the old religion, with, with traditional Catholic religion. Um, then on the other side, the other group of nonconformists, if you like, are um, those who are known as Puritans. And they're the people who think that the English Reformation has not gone far enough. They want to purify the church further. So they, the English church is, um, remains quite traditional in certain respects. So it, it keeps an Episcopal hierarchy. In other words, it has bishops and archbishops, whereas many of the Calvinist churches on the continent had got rid of bishops. Um, the English church also has a fixed liturgy and it's not altogether clear how much space there is for extemporary prayer and the liturgy has various ceremonies like um, uh, the, the use of the cross in baptism for example um, which, which cause controversy among Puritans. They don't see any warrant for these in the Bible and therefore they want to purge the church of them. So there's, there are waves of Puritan agitation as I say, mainly from within the church um, to reform it from within. And we now know that the Puritans had very strong support, even from 
people in Elizabeth's uh, Privy Council. So they have high level support, um, but they're unable uh, to do anything really about removing bishops um, or revising these ceremonies. Um, but they do become a very substantial force within the church and within the parishes, not least because as well as agitating for reform, they also become a sort of um, devotional movement. They, they they write books about practical divinity and how one should lead one's Christian life and about conversion and so on. Um, and so they create a, a very large subculture within English towns and villages. Um, so by the early 17th century under James I, they're, they're a really significant minority within the church. And I assume that there were quite a few people who had a foot in both doors who would go to the established church, but also socialize with the more Puritan elements. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely right. So many people would be involved in parish services, but they'd also be involved in what were called conventicles or uh, unofficial meetings, often meetings just held in people's homes. But these would be when the laity and maybe a clergyman would gather together for uh, for worship and prayer and reading the Bible and godly books and so on. So this is partly how this this uh, particular subculture develops within the within the church. During this period, not only in England, but obviously broader Europe, there was tremendous violence, including the Thirty Years War, 1618 to 1648. So how did the extraordinary violence, especially between Protestants and Catholics, inform or influence the intellectual debate and arguments surrounding religious tolerance? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The, the, the European context is very important to bear in mind here. So, um, you know, those of us who are British or American tend to think very much about the histories of our own countries, but contemporaries uh, are very very aware of the European situation and particularly contemporary elites. They all speak and are educated in Latin, of course. So they're part of a, of a, uh, a European culture. Um, and Europe provides uh, rather different lessons depending on where you look. So on the one hand, as you say, uh, this is a period of wars of religion. Uh, the most notorious, I suppose, is the, are the French wars of religion in the later 16th century. Uh, the most notorious episode of those is the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in Paris in 1572, when several thousand Protestants are butchered in the streets because there's fear of a Protestant coup. Um, the Thirty Years' War, though, at least in its initial stages, looks to many contemporaries as if it's a Protestant versus Catholic conflict. Uh, like most wars, uh, it's, it's more complicated than that, and, it, and Thirty Years' War is a particularly complex war, which is fought on different fronts for all sorts of reasons. But uh, it does increase a sense of crisis, I think, among um, uh, among British observers, who are for the most part not directly involved in it, but they, they tend to see it um, through the framework of biblical prophecy, the book of Revelation and so on, and they think they're living in the end times. So apocalyptic ideas are very, very powerful in shaping the way people look at the Thirty Years' War and look at their contemporary situation, in particular the reign of Charles I. On the other hand, um, one of the interesting things about post-Reformation Europe is that Catholics and Protestants don't just spend all the time 
attacking and butchering each other. Uh, but there, there are all kinds of efforts to reach some kind of uh, peace or coexistence. Um, and historians have been much have become very interested in that in, in the last uh, couple of decades. Um, so th- these arrangements could vary. They could be very local. There are even cases, for example, in, in the continent of uh, Lutherans and Catholics sharing churches and just using the you know these churches at different times of day um, uh, to, to hold their different religious rites. Um, there are cities in which Protestants and Catholics coexist um, and in which the majority religion turns a blind eye to the other and allows them to sort of worship in a semi-clandestine fashion. Um, and Amsterdam is an obvious example of that, you know, where, where the majority is Protestant or Calvinist, uh, but Catholics are able to worship in some very large chapels within merchant houses. Um, and there are a number of multi-confessional polities where Catholics and Protestants have reached a formal legal constitutional agreements who uh, work together. So that's true of Poland, for example, where the Polish nobility in the late 16th century uh, allow each uh, estate to decide its own religion. And even in France for a long time in the 17th century, uh, the Protestant minority is accommodated and, and given legal toleration under the Edict of Nantes. So you could look to the European continent and you could see religious war, but you could also look to the European continent and see models of religious coexistence. Okay, so I guess it would make sense then if you're thinking and writing about these issues that you have both a negative example, well, here's what happens when people don't get along, they just kill each other, plus the positive examples of, hey, look, it's actually possible for people with different religions to live in close proximity and be civil to each other. Absolutely, and and so two different lessons are drawn from, um, from looking across at the, the European example. So those who defend religious uniformity and argue it's really essential uh, for the state not to tolerate religious dissent will point to wars of religion and say, look, this is what happens once you get more than one religion in a, in a polity, once you allow more than one religion, uh, you, you, you'll end up with religious conflict. Um, so religious unity is essential to political unity. That's a, a pr- pragmatic argument that's used. Um, other people draw completely different arguments from the wars of religion. They say the wars of religion happen because of attempts to enforce religious uniformity. So that if toleration of minorities is allowed, you will avoid wars of religion. And they will point to Amsterdam and Poland and and other examples and say, look, it is possible for different confessions to coexist in a particular society. You write that in the 1640s, radical Puritans launched a sustained attack on the use of coercion for religious purposes. So what what were these particularly radical Puritans and what was the nature of their of this attack yeah so if if we um go back a little bit the, the protestants had always been divided if you like between a mainstream and a radical tendency so the mainstream reformers like luther and calvin were establishment figures who believed that the true religion should be established and and enforced by by the magistrate um but there'd always been radical protestants uh groups like the anabaptists who baptized only adult believers and who become a sort of separatist small sects, uh, groups like the Sassinians who denied the doctrine of the Trinity, 
uh, spiritualists who said that what really matters is not uh, organized religion. What matters is what's happening within you. So they had a much more sort of internalist, mystical piety. Um, in England, most Puritans had lined up, if you like, with Luther and Calvin uh, and were quite traditional and did expect there to be uh, the state to uh, at least prosecute heresy and so on. But you start to get uh, more radical groups splintering away from uh, mainstream Puritanism. And these radical Puritans uh, are often called separatists. You know, they're sort of broken away uh, from the from the Church of England. Um, some of them even become Baptists. Um, and in the 1640s, uh, they capitalize on the English Civil War. So one of the things that's happened is that Charles I, partly because he's tried to enforce uh, um, his own religious agenda in both England and Scotland, uh, creates a great backlash among Puritans and among Scottish Presbyterians. And he ends up going to war first with the Scots and then with a lot of his own subjects, the so-called parliamentarians who want to defend parliament and Protestantism as they see it against what they see as Charles's popish or Catholic reforms of the church. Uh, Charles is not a Catholic, but he's widely seen to be that. So you get a civil war breaking out between royalists and parliamentarians in 1642. And this rages through much of the 1640s. And one feature of this period is that it become, it, it leads to very heated um, debates. There's a, a tremendous outpouring of pamphlet literature. Um, something like 20,000 different titles are published between 1640 and 1660. Um, so enormous numbers of, of new pamphlets. Um, and these more radical Puritans, and I guess one of the things that, that is at the heart of the Civil Wars is what kind of religious settlement are you going to get at the end of it? And these radical Puritans start to argue that the whole idea of religious uniformity is mistaken um, and that actually magistrates have no right to enforce uniformity in religion. That's going beyond their, uh, their legitimate powers given to them by God. Uh, they can take care of mundane matters. Uh, they can protect property and goods and so on and the, and the person, but they can't um, decide your religion for you. So these tolerationists start to argue that individuals should have the freedom to choose their own religion and that the magistrate has no coercive power in religion. Uh, the, the most the best known, actually, certainly to American uh, listeners will be Roger Williams. Um, who uh, at that point had uh, already moved to New England and then had become the founder of Rhode Island. But he moved back to get a charter for Rhode Island in 1643. And in 1644, he wrote um, a, a very famous book called The Bloody Tenant of Persecution. So he's one of the key figures in this debate. But there are a number of other writers uh, who, who are making the same case at the same time. I think 19, uh, 1644 is also Aeropagitica yeah. publication date by John Milton. So what what's what's the role of that work in this broader debate on toleration? Yeah, well, Aeropagitica, um, Milton's defense of liberty of the press, you know, his argument against pre-publication censorship um, becomes a classic text, I suppose, for Western liberals, especially later on, you know, the 19th century and so on, it, it's very widely uh, claimed and seen as a text that everybody should read. And, it, you know, like everything Milton wrote it is extraordinarily eloquent. 
Um, at the time, actually, it doesn't provoke much response. You know, so Williams's book is very, very controversial, uh, but people largely ignore Areopagitica. But it's it's absolutely from the same milieu. You know, so w- Williams and um, Milton are both operating in London. Um, they're they're living close to each other. They have mutual friends. They probably meet each other and get to know each other at this point. They certainly know each other later on. So they're part of um, uh, the radical faction among the parliamentarians, the so-called independents. And the independents acquire that name because many of them support the idea that individual congregations should be independent and self-governing. Uh, they shouldn't be dictated to by bishops or even by Presbyterian church courts and certainly not by the magistrate. They should be voluntary communities of believers who are independently self-governing. So Williams and Milton um, uh, are identified with with uh, that cause, the sort of independent cause, even though neither of them is uh, terribly close, isn't, is, is associated with a particular congregation. Uh, they're a bit more maverick than that. Um, but the independents become a really powerful force in the 1640s, largely because, um, as well as having support in the city of London and Parliament, uh, they're a minority there, but they do acquire control of Parliament's army in the middle of the 1640s. And they have the sympathy of Oliver Cromwell, uh, who becomes eventually the commander of the army. So that so they have... Um, they have the might of the, the new model army on their side. And yet the same decade, someone that you've studied quite a bit, Samuel Rutherford, came out with his work, A Free Disputation Against Pretended Liberty of Conscience. Mm. So maybe say a word about, and didn't you write a whole book about Rutherford? Absolutely, yeah. Well, my, my, I began, uh, cut my teeth really in story and doing my PhD on uh, Samuel Rutherford. So he was one of the leading Scottish theologians of his day. Um, a figure who defended the war against the king at great length in a, a major treatise called Lex Rex or the Law and the Prince. Um, but he became very disturbed by what Milton and Williams and other tolerationist writers were arguing. Uh, and in 1649, he wrote this treatise against toleration, which Owen Chadwick, the brother of Henry Chadwick, whom you mentioned earlier, uh, once described as as the ablest defence of religious persecution in the 17th century, so kind of <laughs> rather dubious distinction. Um, but yeah, what what Rutherford was doing really was trying to reassert the traditional uh, magisterial reform view that the um, the magistrate, the Christian magistrate, has the power to order religion, to decide what the official religion of the state is but also to prosecute those who break away from the church schismatics and those who teach false doctrine heresy. Um, And he argues that case at great length. He appeals, for example, to the Old Testament um, and to the the use of punishment against blasphemers and so on in the Old Testament. Uh, But he also has a variety of other arguments uh, against toleration. The average person on the street, I assume they at least heard of these in some sense, was there some sort of con- general public consensus on who was winning the day in terms of the arguments, or was it just such a mix and such a free-for-all? It's hard to say. Yeah, I and mean, it was very confusing for contemporaries because events were moving so fast, both in Parliament and in the battlefield, uh, but also there's such a flurry of pamphlets coming out. It's, it's quite hard to follow. Of course, most people at this point are non-literate, 
you know, so it's a minority of the population, certainly a minority of the female population, but even among men, you know, illiteracy is very high. Um, so we're talking about a minority of people who are closely following these debates. On the other hand, they're going beyond the traditional intellectual and political elite. So we've got, you know, artisans in the city of London and other towns who are eagerly reading these pamphlets. Um, and um, yeah, it's uh, the majority of the population uh, are probably supporters of, of uh, relatively traditional positions on this, you know, that they would sympathize with the king and the Episcopacy, you know, there's about half the population would be royalist. Uh, but even among the parliamentarians, uh, there's the, the majority view among the parliamentarians is Presbyterian, which, which argues that they should have a uniform national church. So the sorts of arguments Rutherford is making um, while eventually they, they're disowned, you know, de- many decades later, disowned by other Presbyterians. Uh, at the time, they're pretty mainstream. And the people who look strange and uh, eccentric are those who are arguing that um, the state has no power to enforce religious uniformity. That's so interesting because today it's 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 hard to put ourselves in that mindset even i mean speaking as an american it just seems so i mean it just seems it's so far away from how i think about things and how i've been brought up to think about things but but i guess it's it's really useful to put ourselves back in that in the mindset of the day and realize that the tolerationists were the ones paddling upstream yeah that's right yeah and i, th- I think a lot of um you know if, if you belong to religious traditions are you you know you're protestant or catholic uh, people are often surprised going, especially Protestants, I think, often surprised going back to the 16th and 17th century and realizing that, um, you know, the idea of religious liberty was not obvious to uh, many early modern Protestants. I mean, things have changed by the 18th century, but in the 17th century, this is a very, very contested um, idea. Um, and I think one of the problems people have with it is, is, political you know it, it is this sense that um you, you need religious unity that a, that a nation that prays together stays together if you like um so the religious uniformity is is uh, is is a glue which holds society together but of course there's also a great horror of um of heresy you know especially among many clergy so there's a fear that actually it, it tolerating false religion is not actually um a generous, kind thing to do. You know, it's like tolerating poison. Uh, this is a sort of image that people use. Or they'll say that heresy is like gangrene, which is eating away at somebody's body. Uh, you wouldn't say a surgeon uh, was being a nice, tolerant chap if he refused to operate uh, on, on, the, on the diseased body. And that's very much how they talk about heresy. They say that for the good of souls, for the good of people and their spiritual welfare and their eternal destiny, it's, it's vital that magistrates act as surgeons and they cut this gangrene out of the body. And so we've been talking more about the ideas, but let's just pause for a minute and talk about the the practical consequences for people. So certainly there were people executed on both sides, on the Puritan side and the Catholic side by the established church. But then you talk a lot about the broader scope of, I would say persecution, they would say, I guess, prosecution in terms of putting people on trial, depriving people of official positions, putting people in prisons, sometimes horrid, sometimes not so horrid, um, taking people's wealth, even expelling them from the country. So 
maybe say a word about the extent of the actual state-sponsored violence against people who did not conform to the official religion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it's worth saying as a preface to this that um, this is not a society which is particularly squeamish about capital punishment. Um, you know, so uh, I, I know capital punishment is still legal in certain parts of the US, but it's relatively rare, certainly for the size of the population. Uh, capital punishment is very, very common in early modern societies. Um, you know, I think one of the things we sometimes we have very kind of nostalgic sort of views of traditional societies, but but they are you know more violent places. Um, interpersonal violence is more common, but of course the the criminal code also allows execution for um, for burglary and the and these sorts of um, crimes as well. So execution is quite a, a common thing, and and you know you, uh, when when you understand that maybe the use you know the, the fact that uh, the, the numbers of people executed for religious offences uh, is quite a small proportion of those executed overall. So as I said, under uh, Queen Mary uh, in the uh, the 1550s, there had been a particularly severe persecution of Protestants with about three, almost 300 Protestants being burned at the stake for heresy, including uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramner, who was the main author of the Book of Common Prayer, um, that that really was un, un, unusual in its scale and intensity because across Reformation Europe, over about half a century after the, the Reformation, uh, historians think there are maybe several thousand people executed for heresy, maybe 3,000. Um, so, you know, these, these numbers are significant, but the fact that 300 are executed within three or four years in England in the 1550s gives an indication of just how intense that particular burst of persecution was. Um, it's interesting, though, that Protestant regimes also employ capital punishment uh, against uh, religious dissent. Um, so under Edward VI, there had been a couple of people executed for uh, denial of the Trinity, or for, for uh, attacking the idea of the Trinity publicly and refusing to recant. Um, and then again, under Elizabeth, there are about half a dozen more executed for anti-Trinitarianism, which is seen as the most serious theological heresy. Uh, and again, even under James I in 1612, you get two other executions for heresy. Um, these are the last executions for heresy uh, in England. Um, but in the 1650s and uh, in the Cromwellian era, uh, there's a Quaker called James Naylor who causes great controversy because he, he reenacts Christ's entry into Jerusalem by riding into Bristol on a horse with uh, his women followers shouting Hosanna to the son of David uh, around him. Uh, and this is regarded as blasphemy. And Parliament actually has a 10-day debate about what to do with him. And Cromwell and others oppose execution. Uh, but in the end, Parliament decides that um, Naylor should nevertheless be branded with the letter B on his forehead for blasphemer uh, and that he should be flogged and whipped through the streets um, and then imprisoned. So quite severe corporal punishments are used against um, against the Quakers and Naylor in particular. Uh, and then at the end of the 17th century in Scotland, you get the last execution um, by hanging in this case uh, for blasphemy. Uh, of a young Scottish university student who's uh, seen to have blasphemed and denied the Trinity and 
uh, been abusive towards uh, towards God. So that that's you know so there are a variety of these cases of of um, capital punishment, uh, but capital punishment is also used against Catholics. Um, particularly after 1570, when um, Elizabeth I uh, is um, excommunicated uh, by a papal bull, papal declaration, um, and uh, there are there are various plots against her life by Catholic conspirators, and of course you get the attempted invasion of England in 1588 by the Spanish Armada. So in that context, there's great fear of the subversion of Catholics. Um, and significant numbers uh, of Catholic priests uh, are executed, um, uh, both under Elizabeth I, but also under James. Uh, and then right into the 1640s, in the English Civil War, again, you get another spate of executions of Catholic priests. A bit ago, we were talking about the radical Puritans, the independents, and then a few decades in the 1640s, and then by 1689 came John Locke's A Letter Concerning Toleration. So bridge that gap in those decades and then outline what was Locke arguing and why was that piece so successful? Yeah, so uh, as I said, the idea of religious toleration was very much put on the table in the 1640s. Um, and then the, because the independents and their army, the new model army, win the, the, the Civil War, um, their commander, Oliver Cromwell, eventually uh, becomes head of state as Lord Protector in the 1550s. So you get a period of toleration, at least of Protestant religious minorities, though there's still severe discrimination against Catholics and against um, uh, prayer book Anglicans as well. In 1660, after Cromwell's death, uh, you get the restoration of the monarchy and Charles II comes back as king. Uh, and a lot of the royalists who'd fought in the civil wars come back as MPs and peers in the House of Lords. And they want revenge for what's happened. And they feel um, deeply aggrieved by the, the Puritan episode that's just passed. Um, and so they uh, they support uh, a raft of legislation which imposes religious uniformity. And al almost 3,000 Puritan clergy are ejected from, uh, 2,000 are ejected from the, the, the Church of England. Um, and uh, it becomes illegal to meet in conventicles outside the established church. Um, and thousands of people are imprisoned, sometimes for very long periods of time. Uh, many hundreds of Quakers die in prison during this this period, the Restoration Era. Uh, with their attempts to enforce uniformity. So this is the period in which Locke grows up. And I think one of the interesting things about Locke um, is that he always remains a member of the established church. You know, so he's an Anglican. He, he doesn't belong to one of these sects. He's not sympathetic with uh, independency or the Baptists. So he's different in that sense, even from Milton. Um, uh, he's an elite figure. So he'd been educated at Oxford in the 1650s. Um, and in the 1660s, he becomes um, part of the household of the Earl of Shaftesbury, who's one of the most powerful and influential aristocrats, uh, aristocratic figures within English politics. Um, and Shaftesbury is pushing for toleration for nonconformists, for these Protestant dissenters outside the church. Um, and it's it's in Shaftesbury's service that Locke starts to write in favour of toleration. Um, eventually, both Shaftesbury and Locke have to go into 
exile. Uh, and it's while he's in exile that he writes his letter concerning toleration. He writes it initially in Latin, uh, and then it's translated into English and published in 1689. And it becomes um, the classic work on religious toleration. Um, and I think there are different reasons for that. It, it, it's not so much that Locke invents a whole series of new arguments in defense of toleration. Most of the arguments he makes have been, you can find in, in earlier tracts, many of them in the 1640s. Um, but Locke makes the argument um, as a philosopher, uh, as a very cultured figure, as an establishment figure. He makes it, if you like, from uh, the inside and from the political elite uh, in a way that will um, resonate in the 18th century. Uh, initially, it's published anonymously, so people aren't sure who the author is, but eventually it is seen as part of Locke's corpus of writings. And the authority and respect Locke has as a philosopher, um, the essay concerning human understanding and uh, the two treatises of government and these other major works, they uh, lend credibility to the letter concerning toleration and they make it you know, the, the, the most important go-to text on the subject. I just saw an article yesterday, in fact, about something Locke wrote pertaining to toleration of Catholics or potential. Mm. So what can you say about whether and to what degree Locke was prepared to tolerate the Catholics? Yeah, so there's been a lot of... Um, and people are often struck when they read the letter concerning toleration because it's seen as, you know, Locke is seen as a, one of the founding fathers of uh, political liberalism. Uh, they're often shot when they read it and discover that Locke in the letter excludes atheists from toleration, but also uh, Roman Catholics. Uh, now, he excludes atheists because this is a society in which oaths are very important uh, and swearing in the name of God uh, is a way of binding yourself. And, and he, he thinks that atheists, um, because they don't see themselves as accountable to a higher power, um, are uh, untrustworthy. So that's his argument for not including atheists in an official toleration. Uh, he excludes Roman Catholics for a different reason. He doesn't exclude them because of their belief, for example, in transubstantiation or any of their religious rites or um, points of theology. The reason he says that they should not be uh, officially tolerated uh, is that uh, they owe allegiance to a foreign power. So this was an, a long-standing Protestant concern about Roman Catholics, that their loyalty actually lies with the Vatican, with, with the papacy, um, and that therefore they, they're a potentially subversive force who will undercut Protestantism. He also, I think, tends to think of Catholicism as um, um, inherently tending towards persecution. Uh, that, that popery uh, encourages the enforcement of religious dogma, uh, whereas he sees Protestantism as at least moving in the right direction towards allowing individuals to decide their own religion for themselves. Um, but you're right, there's been a, a, a new document discovered by Locke, I think in a um, college in Maryland, um, and uh, that's been published in the last couple of months. And it's an interesting text because it comes from earlier in his career before he wrote the letter concerning toleration. And it sets out reasons 
for tolerating Roman Catholics. So it shows that actually Locke is um, rather ambivalent about this. He, he's worried on the one hand about the possibility of Catholic subversion, but on the other hand, he does think through the reasons why um, uh, even Roman Catholics should be should be tolerated alongside all sorts of different Protestant groups and Jewish groups. Uh, in the letter concerning toleration, for example, he doesn't have a problem with the toleration of Muslims or Jews, but Catholics, <laughs> Catholics uh, ironically constitute a bigger problem for him. Well, I just watched a set of lectures by an American scholar, Jason Bivens, on religion and violence, and he has a lecture devoted to American anti-Catholicism, and this mm. seems to have been very much inspired by the sort of thing that Locke was writing. So that was a big problem for in the United States for some time. Yeah, and anti-Catholicism is a very, very powerful um, force in both British and American culture, right through really to the, the 19th century. And you know, in some ways, um, it's still a, a, a factor up, up until 1960, of course, when John F. Kennedy becomes the first Roman Catholic president. And you, you'll remember that there was quite a lot of con controversy around his candidacy um, because concern about uh, Catholic subversion is it was still strong. I mean, it, Protestantism became really important for national identity in both Britain and in uh, the early United States. Um, so the, these are deeply Protestant societies with, with only a very small Catholic minority. Uh, though in Ireland, of course, you have a Catholic majority governed by a, a Protestant minority uh, through the 18th and 19th centuries. Well, I've heard that there were people in my family who would turn off the television if JFK came on TV. So I guess it extends okay. into my, yeah, into my living memory. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's really only in the last generation or so that that, um, um, that has started to dissolve. You know, there's, there's a very strong hostility between Catholics and, and Protestants. Well, we're recording on September 12th. Of course, yesterday commemorated the September 11th mm. terrorist attacks. So it seems like since then there's been a huge shift in terms of, you know, Catholics are no longer the group that, that are demonized. It's now the Muslims, of course. Which So it's kind of ironic listening to Locke and others were perfectly fine tolerating Muslims, but not the Catholics. And today it's totally reversed in, on that score. Yeah, and there are interesting analogies, I think, actually, between the way in which um, early modern Protestants in England look at Catholicism and the way in which uh, Islam is, is regarded in, in the present. So, um, uh, you know, there, there's, there's worries that um, English Catholicism has an extremist fringe that is willing to um, contemplate uh, violence and terrorism. And, of course, the most notorious example of that is the gunpowder plot in 1605 when a small knot of uh, militant Catholics do plot to blow up the Houses of Parliament and the King, um, and they're, they're thwarted. Uh, but that, that does create a panic about, um, about the terrorist potential of uh, Catholicism. Uh, so anti-popery is, is, uh, is a sort of phobia, I suppose, you know, comparable in a way to uh, Islamophobia in the present. And the government faces... Um, uh, it, it tries to tackle the problem in ways that don't seem altogether strange either, and that's that it tries to separate out moderates from extremists. Uh, that's one of the key strategies of the Elizabethan, especially the Jacobean regime, 
um, and there are various attempts to uh, surveillance and you know, spies are employed to to keep an eye on the Catholic community and make sure that it's not causing trouble. Um, and I think you've got the paradox as well with Catholicism and Islam that on, on the one hand, within England itself, the, the Catholic population is, is a, a small and vulnerable minority. But in the minds of the Protestant population, it's associated with some sort of large global threatening global force. Um, so I, I think some of the um, some of the parallels there are quite quite intriguing. And even so, I hear conservatives in my country making the argument along this along these lines. Well, Muslims are committed by their religion to Sharia law, mm. and that is inherently antagonistic toward American law. Therefore, they're inherently uh, so. So you get the same a comparable ki- kind of argument. It strikes me. As they used to say, the Catholics were inherently seditious because they were loyal to the Pope. We're now getting some kind of parallel argument against the Muslims among certain conservative communities. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. So let's go back to the history. So we were talking about Locke, and obviously he was hugely influential on the American founding. And so maybe talk a bit about not in detail, but just some of the highlights maybe. So there was in Maryland, there was a toleration act in 1649. Much later in Virginia, there was the statute for religious freedom. That was 1786. And so what are the other, uh, I don't know. Is there something in a brief way you can say about the influence of Locke and like people on American law leading up to our U S constitution? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that some of the key players in the English toleration debates in the 17th century have a significant um, input into the early uh, colonies in the 17th century. Um, So we've we've mentioned Roger Williams already in Rhode Island, which, of course, does recognize uh, freedom of religion in its uh, its constitution in the 1660s. Um, But also, of course, we've got William Penn um, and Pennsylvania, uh, enshrines religious toleration as, as part of its constitution from the beginning. Um, and so, and Penn had written quite extensively in favor of toleration. So Pennsylvania remains a sort of beacon of uh, religious diversity and toleration through the 18th century. And people like Voltaire in France will look to Pennsylvania as a model of, of where France should be uh, headed. Um, and Locke himself is a hand in writing the constitution of the Carolinas in which he um, uh, seems to introduce an element of religious toleration there as well. Um, obviously, the, the pattern, the, the religious pattern in the different parts of uh, the, the colonies or, or the, uh, the United States varies quite considerably. So in, in New England, you've got a dominant congregationalism or the Puritan legacy is still very, very strong. Um, and in Virginia, you know, the, uh, Episcopal uh, uh, Anglicanism is, is the dominant uh, faith, though, of course, there are no bishops in Virginia uh, for most of the 17th and 18th century. They're, they're, they're uh, ostensibly governed by the Bishop of London from um, back in back in England. Uh, and then the middle colonies, you've got a much more uh, religiously diverse, pluralistic um, culture. So both in New England, in Massachusetts and Connecticut, and then in Virginia, um, 
there were quite severe restrictions on religious um, minorities. And, and of course, there were also taxes uh, that, that would be paid towards the upkeep of the um, the established churches, the, the parish uh, churches. Um, so uh, much of the American debate uh, in the 18th century is, is focused in Massachusetts and Connecticut and then in, in Virginia uh, with campaigners, particularly religious minorities like the Baptists, pushing against the religious establishment. Uh, and you get this interesting alliance, don't you, between, uh, on the one hand, these popular sectarian religious movements like the Baptists and the Methodists, and on the other hand, um, uh, Enlightenment elite figures like, like Madison and Jefferson, uh, who support religious freedom, but are coming at it from a very different position. I'm curious, is there a book or a few books that you could point to sort of on par with what you wrote about England, about the continuation of the toleration debate in the United States and pre-United States? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a number of, uh, I mean, there's obviously a huge literature in all aspects of American history, but um, uh, on this particular topic, there are people like John Rogosta who've written about Virginia, you know, the wellspring of liberty would be uh, one of his books, Uh, Chris Benneke, fairly recently on Beyond Toleration. Um, so there, there are a number of um, authors who've um, uh, studied uh, the, the situation in the in the 18th century, uh, and then I, I also, you know, for the the American Revolution era, um, getting into the primary sources is is the best way because, of course, you know, Jefferson and Madison and the others are such uh, wonderful writers. You know, they're very accessible in the way they they present the arguments. So I like your book a lot because it's a scholarly book and yet it remains accessible to the lay reader. Even though I will say to listeners, it might be helpful to have a secondary source or even Wikipedia to <laughs> kind of remind yourself of some of these some of these things which uh, your book takes sort of takes for granted that the reader understands and is aware of, but maybe some readers aren't, who I still hope will read the book. But one thing you begin your book with, which I thought was really interesting, was a discussion of how other historians have approached Mm. the era that you talk about. And so you talk about the Whig approach and then the so-called revisionist approach, and you're trying to sort of plot a third path or work between those. So could you talk about those, those two traditions and what what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, so I, I guess the, the the Whig interpretation of history, as it was dubbed by uh, the Cambridge historian um, Herbert Butterfield many years ago, uh, he the Whig interpretation of history sees um, the history of modernity in terms of progress, and it tries to separate out the heroes from the villains. It tells a sort of morality tale, tries to look at you know the, the progressive heroes and the reactionary villains. Um, it tells a, a fairly um, binary story, I suppose, about progress from darkness to light, medieval darkness to, to modern enlightenment. Uh, and it owes something to um, the, the Renaissance and the Reformation and the Enlightenment and, and the way in which the, the key players in, in those movements wrote about the Middle Ages. Um, Whig history tended to focus on the weak history of toleration tended to focus on intellectual history. Um, so figures like Locke were the, the great heroic figures who'd argue for toleration and they'd take center stage. Um, and it tended to have a pretty um, uh, unremittingly dark view of um, the, the Middle Ages and the, the 16th century in terms of, you know, seeing, seeing them just in terms of persecution. Um, 
revisionist historians have questioned that in various ways. I mean, they, they've they've tried to complicate, I suppose, the, the way we look at it and argue that things aren't so straightforward. So they'll do this in different ways. I mean, on the one hand, they'll argue that we've got to be careful about caricaturing the Middle Ages as an entirely benighted, reactionary, hardline, persecutory, blood-soaked period that actually this is a um, a stereotype of the period and, and the, the medieval culture is um, very dynamic and diverse and intellectually can be intellectually sophisticated and, and feeds into these reform movements like you know renaissance humanism and the reformation and so on um, and they'll argue as well that um, the progress towards religious toleration was very uneven um, and that states even after they'd embraced ideas of toleration uh, we're still finding ways to uh, to, to police religion uh, in significant ways. Even privatizing religion could be a way to control it, to police it, to consolidate the authority of the, the state. Um, they've also tended to shift attention away from intellectuals onto social history. So look at what was actually happening on the ground. And again, this sort of complicates the picture because, as I said earlier, there are many places in early modern Europe where uh, even in the 16th and early 17th centuries, Catholics and Protestants are coexisting. They're finding ways to work alongside each other. So that some of our stereotypes about that period don't work. You know, it's not as if there are heresy burnings in every street corner each week. I mean, that actually the, the more normal thing is coexistence. Religious war and violence are abnormal. They're, they're, not, the, they're not the usual pattern of, of confessional relations. Um, and there's been a lot of emphasis on um, coexistence in parishes, you know, even even in local parishes that pe- there's a certain amount of to- uh, everyday ecumenism or everyday tolerance shown by ordinary parishioners. So that 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 sort of shifted the um, the argument. And revisionist historians tend to be quite unhappy about very strong progressive or sort of Whig narratives. Uh, I guess in the, the way I approached that, I tried to um, um, strike some kind of balance between the two um, the two approaches because you know it seems to me you, you can't just go back to the old Whig approach. It was too simplistic. Um, on the other hand, you can see a, a, a progression from. Um, I mean, in, in two ways, I think in the 17th century. What one is that. England in 1600 is quite religiously uniform. There are very few people really worshipping outside the established church in an organised way. By 1700, England has become very pluralistic. Uh, you've got you know hundreds of thousands of Protestant dissenters meeting outside the established church, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Baptists, Quakers. These have become quite significant movements, and the British Empire or the colonies are even more religiously diverse um so there's that movement from uniformity to pluralism and there's also movement from the acceptance of coercion as a tool in the 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 kit of the the magistrate to um a growing recognition that it's wrong for magistrates to enforce religion that actually individuals do have a right to decide for themselves what their religion is so you that 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 does seem to me this significant shift towards an embrace of ideas of toleration and that, that that's um, uh, part of the old story is, is still defensible. Do you have time for two or three questions about possible lessons from, 
from this era for our lives today? Or I don't, I don't know what your schedule is. Do you need to wrap this up or do you have a few? No, um, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, no, no problem. Okay. Yeah. So one issue, obviously, that we're, we read about in the news a lot these days is the horrific injustice perpetrated against Muslim minorities in places like China, mm. which is literally putting up concentration camps of Mus- for Muslims for these re-education centers. We have in Myanmar, Muslims being pushed to the edge of their country and out of their country, and it's been referred to as cultural genocide. Even in places like India, in some parts, Muslim minorities are being very badly treated. Mm-hmm. Is there, mm-hmm. I know this is you know quite far afield from your book, but if, if a leader from one of these countries asks you, is there anything, what do you tell them in terms of what can they look to from history to try to work on and hopefully solve these problems? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I guess one of the reasons why the history is worth attending to is that um, it shows that the kinds of issues we're having to deal with today are not new ones. They're not ones that haven't been faced before and worked through before in very different cultural contexts. Um, I think that it's interesting. I think one of the reasons why the history of toleration has come become a real interest to historians and political theorists again is that um, toleration was seen as a problem that had been solved. It was sort of done and dusted. That was in our past. We've now we've worked that one out. Whereas how you deal with religious diversity uh, and um, programs of persecution and so on have come uh, back to our attention, back to the front pages of the newspapers and the, and the news uh, in, in the last uh, generation or so. Um so the history, I think, is is relevant for different reasons. I mean, I think one way um, it might be relevant is that um, if you if you take the social history of toleration, uh, what it does is provide you with a whole variety of examples of how, despite really serious disagreement, different um, societies and states manage to come to some uh, arrangement, some pragmatic <laughs> arrangement, if you like, that allowed different religious communities to coexist. So this is this is a bit different from high-minded, principled arguments for religious toleration. It's looking at what was happening on the ground in different places. Um, and so you can see that that's possible, even when people are not necessarily political liberals uh, or secularists, they, 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 they can, different, these different uh, traditions can still find ways of coexisting. Um, the intellectual history, I think, is still relevant and interesting because um, it shows how people could arrive at uh, ideas of toleration and religious liberty um, from within a particular tradition. Now, the, the way they did it, of course, was from within the Christian tradition. And you can see them arguing theologically, though also philosophically, uh, about whether f- the use of force in religion is ever justified. Um but it does it, it does provide one model of how, from within a religious tradition, uh, one might argue for religious toleration. Now, obviously, that doesn't quite resolve the issue of the, the Chinese Communist Party and and its uh, its justification for persecution, which I think will be um, very strongly politically motivated, probably in terms of the concern about uh, any sort of uh, potentially subversive. Um, minority, but nevertheless, I, I think both the social history of toleration and the political and the intellectual history of uh, 
toleration uh, are both uh, of interest today. So growing up in the United States, I took a cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic, multi-religious society basically for granted. I grew up in Western Colorado, so I knew Protestants. I grew up Protestant. I knew Catholics. We were right by Utah, so there was a big mm-hmm. Mormon community where where I lived. So it never seemed problematic to me at all. But in more recent years, we have, well, whatever you think of Donald Trump, we have Donald Trump being elected. <laughs> we have the rise, at least the noticeable rise of, of some people who are quite forthrightly call themselves white nationalists and they explicitly mm. draw, they explicitly look back on this tradition that says, well, we're the Christians. And so we have to um, push out the Muslims or whomever. Mm. And so is, is, is this just a blip that's going to go away or do we have real reason to be concerned about reversals of toleration, not only of religion, but just sort of a broader cultural toleration in terms of living and letting live uh, having a society where people with different views and ways of life can live harmoniously together. Yeah, well, I think one of the points the revisionist historians of toleration are making is we shouldn't actually take toleration for granted. That um, the, the Whiggish narrative tended to give the impression that the progress was inevitable and inexorable and irreversible, whereas actually you can find numerous examples of reverses in the history of religious toleration. I mean, perhaps the most famous example would be in France, where in 1598, you do get an edict of toleration for Protestants. But then that's revoked in the 1680s by Louis XIV. Um, And hundreds of thousands of Protestants go into exile. They they, they leave France. So um, a a view of history, which just sees it as a kind of nice, gentle, upward progress uh, towards enlightenment, uh, and doesn't take seriously the possibility of uh, of reverses um, is, I think, quite problematic. So that that does point, I guess, to the need for for vigilance. Um, and I think the history also indicates how difficult it is for humans generally, I suppose, to deal with otherness. You know, to deal with serious, deep disagreement. You know, profoundly different views of the world. And I think that's one of the challenges we face, this is true of course in Brexit Britain as much as it is perhaps in the United States today, is the polarisation of communities, um, not just on religious lines but politically as well, um, can make make reconciliation or finding any kind of middle ground very, very difficult. Um, So that's that's a rather sort of pessimistic lesson but I I do think it is one of the lessons of the history. That we shouldn't expect this to be to be easy. It actually requires a great deal of work and effort and vigilance to to maintain a society that is um, is generous and inclusive and accepting uh, a wide variety of communities. Well, and I'll take this as an opportunity to really encourage listeners to read your book. Um, obviously, we've only hit some of the highlights, and there's. I found it very, I found it really insightful, not only in terms of understanding my own history as American, the history of American law, of our U.S. Constitution, but of understanding even more recent dynamics, again, between after the 9-11 terrorist attacks and the dynamics between the Christians and the Muslims and the conservative Christians. And uh, 
you know, so I think this is looking at looking at that era of history is one of the key things that we can do, especially as Americans, not only to understand ourselves, but to understand ways that we can move forward and encourage um, other people, hopefully, to move forward. So I think I'm going to leave it there in terms of the questions, in, unless you have something uh, that you think that we really important that we missed in terms of the history of toleration or what we can what we should say about it today. No, I, th- um, I think we've covered uh, quite a lot of ground and it's been a really uh, stimulating conversation. So I'm really grateful to you for having me on the show. Do you mind quickly giving a synopsis of your book, Exodus and Liberation, Deliverance Politics from John Calvin to Martin Luther King Jr.? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a rather different book. Um, uh, but it's uh, it's essentially looking at the political use of the Exodus story, and particularly the idea of the Exodus from the, the narrative of the Exodus of the uh, Hebrews from Israel, from from under the sort of bondage of Pharaoh into through the wilderness into the Promised Land. Uh, one of the things that struck me when working on uh, 17th century England, particularly the English Revolution, was how often people invoked. Uh, the Exodus story, and they they even told the um, story of England's revolution as an exodus from slavery, political slavery, um, and uh, that that made me curious really about the ways in which it was used. And, and other people had mentioned this, but uh, I wanted to do a, um, uh, a more thorough study, I suppose, of how the Exodus story had been used. Uh, and so the book really starts with the Reformation and then moves on to uh, the English Revolution, which we've, we've been talking about today in the mid-17th century. Um, and then it looks at how um, gradually the Exodus story started to be turned against not just religious or political slavery, the sort of metaphorical forms of slavery, but how it gets turned against um, physical slavery, uh, the, the racial slavery that, that prevails uh, in much of the um, uh, the Americas. Um, and so I, I started looking at how anti-slavery activists in the American Revolution and then the abolitionists in the 19th century, how they use the story. And it goes all the way up actually to um, the civil rights movement and uh, how it was used by Martin Luther King and other civil rights activists. Okay, well, I got that book in the mail a couple of days ago, so I'll, I'll have to oh, good. I'll put it on my list for sure. Um, I just have one more kind of more broader general question, if you if you will indulge. You have a, I think it's a book chapter called "The Language of Liberty and Calvinist Political Thought." Mm. So, so for listeners, my last podcast was with a guy named Lawrence Goldstone, who co-authored a book about Michael Servetus. Mm. Mm. And in that book, John Calvin is the villain, the villain, <laughs> the villain yeah, because right, yeah. John Cal- Calvin organizes and strongly advocates the execution of Servetus. Yeah. Who I who and I I, I really like just there's some I just really like Servetus. I like his personality and character. Mm. He's I just find him really interesting. So can you offer uh sort of the the better side of Calvin for us as yeah. a counterbalance? I mean Calvin's a complicated figure. I mean I think of him actually as as, as very similar in this regard to uh, Augustine. Um so there's this both of them were incredibly prolific. Both of them defended religious coercion, and of course, they have very similar theology in terms of predestination. Um, so there are, there are a variety of ideas within, you know, Augustine and Calvin that are, are problematic, but they're, they're also, uh, you know, extremely interesting thinkers. I mean, Calvin uh, began his life as a, a humanist scholar with a translation of Seneca, 
he's one of the, the more astute commentators on the biblical texts in the, uh, the 16th century. Um, he's not really the dictator of Geneva, such you know. He's is is um, his role. I think is sometimes distorted in in certain accounts. Um, but the tradition that flows from him is, of course, much broader than his own work. You know, so we talk about the Calvinist or Reformed tradition, but actually it's influenced by a whole variety of different figures, and it evolves. I mean, I think that's one of the striking things to me that. Um, uh, over the course of the 17th century, uh, you can see it developing in significant ways. Um, and you can see figures who share Calvin's theology uh, dissenting from what happened to Servetus. I mean, you, you know, that uh, uh, becomes increasingly common as, as you go through the, uh, the 17th century. Um, yeah, I mean, it's people have uh, tried to link Calvinism to all kinds of different things. I mean, Max Weber famously said that Calvinism uh, had had an influence on the spirit of capitalism, uh, and of course, Reformed Protestant countries like Switzerland and the Netherlands and Scotland uh, have uh, have often been at the forefront of various modernizing developments and so on. So historians have sometimes wonder what it is about Calvinism that that shapes those cultures. Um, Calvinism tended to place a lot of emphasis, for example, on education, uh, on schooling. You can see that in the, the Scottish tradition is it's quite strong. So the, the Calvinist legacy is is a and Calvin's individual legacy is is a is a big and complex topic. Uh, you have a university website that lists your your body of work. Is there anywhere else where people should be looking to find? what you're working on or just refer to that page? Um, yeah, and I, I've got a page, I think, on academia.edu, which is a site which makes available probably millions of articles by academics around the world and people doing academic research. Um, so I think a, a lot of my writing in terms of book chapters is, is sort of on, on there. Uh, but I'm now kind of moving on to a, um, a rather different project, a big project to do an edition of the diaries of... Um, the British anti-slavery leader, William Wilberforce, who left almost a million words of diaries. Um, so that's a project that will probably uh, <laughs> occupy me and the others who are working alongside me for the next decade, I suppose. Are you going to, I have some friends who would be interested in that. Are you going to, is it going to be one massive work published <laughs> sometime in the distance? Yeah, we, are you going to publish got, aspects of it as you yeah, go? Yeah, well, we've got a contract with Oxford University Press, so they will eventually publish a, a multi-volume edition. But I'm hoping next year to set up a website for the project and then to put some some extracts from the diaries that might be of public interest uh, to put them and make some of those available. Well, if you think of it, drop me an email and I will alert my readers and listeners because that's that's really interesting yeah very happy to do that um and i'm doing a i'll do a page of show notes for listeners so i'll try to drop in the relevant links that we're discussing here mm -hmm. so people can easily look, look them up well listen thanks a lot for being on the show today i really appreciate it no i've really enjoyed uh, our conversation this has been the self and society podcast our guest has been john coffee he's the author of Persecution and Toleration in Protestant England, 1558 to 1689. I hope you'll go get and read the book. For more, please see ariarmstrong.com.